Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. All right, last week we talked about one of the biggest reasons why people misinterpret the Bible, Christians specifically, and that's because of an ignorance of Jewish culture and thought, right? They just don't know, they're not familiar with the culture of the times, and so they misinterpret some of the words, and I shared some of my own stories, so if you haven't heard it, go ahead and check out last week's episode where I give kind of an overview on that, because today we're going to be continuing on that and talk about one um, of the classic misunderstandings that I see, and you know, I, I gotta say, in some of this, I'm going to be taking, you know, some shots at Calvinism. Now, I, I want to be really clear up front, I really love Calvinists. All right. I think, you know, what you see amongst Calvinists, generally speaking, is a real desire to follow the Bible, right? To hold, have a high view of Scripture, um, and to uh, to believe the Bible, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. We have to submit our understanding of what makes sense to the Scriptures. I think that's really noble. Okay, so my heart here is really not to dishonor anybody who would identify as Calvinist or who has a more Calvinist understanding of the Bible. Um, and by the way, that, that was where I was brought up. I was brought up in a Korean church, you know, where, you know, 90% of the pastors or more are Calvinists. And I was taught many scriptures from a Calvinist perspective originally. So I have lots of, you know, appreciation for that view. But I do think, generally speaking, the view misunderstands um, many portions of the Bible because it doesn't understand Jewish culture, okay? And one of the big ones is this issue of election, okay? I'm not going to go really in-depth into election, but I need to touch on it if we're going to get into the uh, to the issue that I really want to cover today, which is assurance of salvation, okay? Um, in, the, in the Old Testament, what we see is we see election chosenness operating in the Old Testament, but it's primarily uh, it's primarily dealing with the chosenness of Israel, right? Like, Israel is a chosen people, and this is how, you know, Jews thought of themselves. It wasn't that God had individually selected them, right? It's that God had actually selected their ancestor, Abraham, all right, and they belonged to that chosenness because they were part of his family, but because of that, they have a responsibility, right? They have a responsibility to uphold the covenant that God swore with my forefathers, right? I've been born into a covenant people, and now I have an obligation to uphold that covenant. And that was the nature of the chosenness. So to a, a Jew, they didn't think of themselves as I'm individually chosen by God. They thought of themselves as I'm a member of a chosen people, right? And because the idea there was that you know, you were a member of the chosen people so long as you upheld the covenant obligations. But if you didn't, then you would be ejected from the chosen people, right? So your chosenness, it wasn't tied to you, it was tied to the people group, and then you shared in that chosenness. And I would I would say that that is exactly the way Paul speaks about our chosenness in the New Testament, okay? It works in the exact same way, all right? The idea is that the chosenness is those who put their faith in Christ, okay? That's the chosen group. And the destiny of eternal life, 
you know, being sanctified into the image of God, all this kind of stuff, that's attached to the chosen group. But I think there's a big misunderstanding because most of the teaching out there on assurance of salvation is that God will never let you fall away, right? Something like that. It's impossible if you're really in Christ to ever fall away. And I just want to say that is not what the scriptures mean at all, okay? In fact, all there's so many warnings in the New Testament about falling away, and that's why I think this doctrine really harms a lot of people because it makes it very confusing. It makes it very confusing. And I understand a lot of people take comfort in this doctrine. Well, hey, if, uh, you know, they say, if if it was up to me, right, man, I would just fall away, right? Like, it'd be impossible because I'm, you know, I'm flawed and broken and all kinds of stuff. So I take comfort in the fact that I know that God, you know, is is keeping me and has sealed me for salvation, I can't mess it up, right? I understand how that can be a comforting thought, but the problem is it's really a false comfort. And I want to clarify here, because I don't want you to go to the other extreme, right? Like, you know, I don't want you to live in terror of falling away. I think that's really unhealthy, all right? The way that I generally teach it is that I liken the fear of God the fear of the Lord to like the lines on the highway, right? So if you're driving on the highway, you know, they've painted lines on the highway so that you know what lane to stay in, right? And basically, if you stay in those lanes, generally speaking, you're going to be okay, right? That to me is like the fear of the Lord. And, and what I mean by that is that God gives us boundaries. And if we stay in those boundaries, we're going to be okay, right? You don't want to live in terror. Like when you're driving, you don't want to live in terror oh my God, I'm so afraid I'm going to get out of the boundaries, I'm going to get a car accident, I'm going to die. Like that would be a terrible driving experience, <laughs> right? For your entire trip to be deathly afraid that you're going to get in a car accident and die, right? That's not healthy. And I understand there are many Christians that live with that kind of terror, right? That they're going to lose their salvation, that God's going to judge them, and they're, and they're afraid of that. And that's not healthy, okay? I don't think that's a healthy fear of the Lord. But there's another extreme. The other extreme is like, there's nothing I can do, right? There's nothing I could do to lose my salvation. I liken that to like, hey, I know there's lines on the highway, but we don't need to worry about those things. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be okay, you know? And if you don't respect those those lines, you're probably going to die, <laughs> right? You're probably going to die. And that's the problem. When Christians don't know what the expectations actually are from God, when they're confused about that, it leads to many of them dying, right? That's why a lot of Christians, I think, die because they don't understand what God actually expects from them. And I said there's a lot of theology out there. Like, you know, I, I remember being taught, you know, early in my Christian walk that all there's no such thing as severity of sin, right? Like all sin is the same. And because all of it, you know, all of it causes us to deserve, you know, condemnation. And I understand why people would say that because they don't want, you know, they don't want anyone to think, oh, I'm, I'm good enough. You know, I kind of deserve heaven, right? Like that's not true for any of us, right? So I understand the heart, I think, of, of that teaching, but that teaching is not true, right? That there's no severity of sin. I mean, even a casual and cursory, you know, study of various sins in the scripture will show that God gets really upset about some and he's much more willing to give mercy to others, right? One of the dynamics are sins committed in ignorance. God's much more merciful towards sins committed in ignorance, for example, okay? And by the way, all of us are too, right? Because we all understand this. Like, you know, if you really believe that God doesn't see a difference of sin, 
you know, and you think that's the right way to live. I mean, nobody can live like that, right? Like, then you should never divorce your spouse ever, right? Because everybody sins. I've, I've definitely heard people say that, right? Everybody sins and you can never divorce. Well, what if they're abusing you, right? They're sleeping around with all these other women or all these other men, you know, like, no, there are certain lines that when they're crossed, right, that's, you can get out of there, okay? And there's differences of severity of sin, right? Nobody lives like there's not a difference, okay? But that's what I'm getting at here. A lot of times, Christians, we say, you know, oh, God will keep us to the end, and we don't know what is really serious and what's not that serious. And so then what you have is you have Christians that are living in deathly fear, right, because they're committing relatively minor sins, okay? Like they're looking at pornography sometimes, or, you know, they they tell lies, you know, about their weight. <laughs> you know, like, I, I'm not trying to say these things are not sinful. They are sinful, all right? But there are many Christians that live in like a type of torment that God is going to reject them on the day of judgment because they commit some of these sins. And I understand how for those people, when they hear this message of the assurance of salvation, it can be very comforting to them because they're like, oh, thank God. You know, like, yes, I do struggle with these sins, but I'm, the Lord promises that nothing will keep me away, right? And nothing will keep me from him and all this kind of stuff. And I just want to say that it's dangerous because it's not true. If you commit certain major sins, right? Or if you give yourself over to practicing even minor sins, your heart can start to harden. In fact, the scriptures warn about this, okay? So when we're not clear about what is acceptable and what's unacceptable, it creates confusion. Boundary lines are really important, right? Like, this is a very important principle when we're dealing with children, like you're parenting children. When when young children don't know what the boundary lines are, they really it's really difficult and really hard for them, okay? Because they don't know what's going to make their parent really mad, right? When it's not clear, right? When they, all of a sudden, their parents blow up at them and get so angry, and they don't understand why. What did I do that was wrong? You know, and it's not clear. Like, kids need to have really clear boundary lines. Hey, this it, this is bad, but it's okay. Like, we can fix this. But if you do this, like, if you kill your sibling, that's not something that we can easily fix, right? That's a serious, serious sin, right? Like, there needs to be clear boundary lines. All right, obviously, that's a, you know, kind of an exaggerated type of case. But that's the idea that we're talking about. They need clear expectation of what happens. If I do this, what will happen? If, you know, if a kid steals a cookie and eats a cookie, and then he gets kicked out of the house for that, right? He's probably going to feel pretty wronged, right? He's going to grow up with major issues, right? Because the sin that he committed doesn't, you know, it shouldn't require being kicked out of the house. That's not a, a good punishment for that, right? In the same way, we need to understand what God's expectations are of us as Christians. When we don't understand that, right, then what happens is we get so confused because then we do certain sins not realizing that these things can really take us out of the faith, right? And I mean that in a serious way, okay? The scripture really does warn about stuff like that. But like I said, most Christians don't understand. And I think this doctrine of the assurance of salvation really brings confusion for many Christians. And again, I think it's because there's a real misunderstanding of what these passages in the scripture actually are talking about.
okay? So let me give a, a, a general paradigm for this, okay? I mentioned last week that there was a huge controversy in the church over the question of, of Gentile believers. Now that all these Gentile believers were coming to faith in Christ, there's a big controversy about whether they should have to become Jews and follow the law of Moses and get circumcised and all the rest of it, right? And what you had is you had guys like Paul, and they were saying, no, you don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to follow the law of Moses, and and you're saved, and you can have assurance in that, right? And there were others who were saying, unless you get circumcised and follow the law of Moses, you are not full members of the people of God, right? Your, your salvation is not assured. You have to do these things, okay? And, and that's the controversy into which Paul was speaking and trying to give assurance to these Gentile believers, okay? And that's why what you're going to see with Paul is that he's constantly bringing the issue back to the issue of having the Spirit, okay? If you have the Spirit, then you know that you belong to God, okay? Because that's, if you remember in Acts 10, that's what happened to Cornelius and his household. They received the Spirit. And because of that, Peter was like, oh my goodness, right? Who can keep them from being baptized? God has given them the Spirit, right? That shows that he has chosen them. The receiving of the Spirit is the sign that you belong to God from a biblical standpoint. It's the evidence that you belong to him, all right? And that's why Paul is constantly going to invoke the receiving of the Spirit as the evidence that you belong to God and you can have assurance. The Spirit is the seal, the sign of your salvation, right? You've been sealed by God because of the Spirit that was given to you as opposed to being circumcised, all right? Because other members of the church who are called the circumcision party were telling these Gentile believers, unless you're circumcised, right, you're not part of God's family, right? You do not have this assurance, but if you get circumcised and you follow the law of Moses, then you can have assurance, all right? That's why Paul's emphasizing it's the spirit that gives us that assurance, okay? So let me just take a look at a couple of passages, all right? In Ephesians 1, Paul's telling the church at Ephesus, and again, this is a mixed community. There are Jews here, but it's mostly Gentile, right? And he's he's speaking to them, and he says this in verse 11. He says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Okay? Now, pause. Uh, already, you know, I, I know that when people hear the term predestined, they're thinking, oh, how God chose these individual people to be part of his his body forever, something like that, right? But that's not actually what it means, okay? what When Paul's referring to the idea of predestination, all right, he's really referring, in, in, in large part, to this idea that the Gentile nations were always predestined to be incorporated into the, the body of, of God, right? The body of Christ, all right? And again, because the debate in his day was, was still around the lines of, no, the Jews are the chosen people of God. If you want to be part of the chosen people, then you must become a Jew. And Paul's saying the opposite track. We're saying, no, God always predestined 
that the Gentiles would come to know him as Gentiles, right? And that's why when he gets into this in like Romans 9, he's going to quote the prophet Hosea. He's going to quote these Old Testament prophecies, right? Those who were not my people shall be called my people. He's going to say, no, God had already chosen beforehand to do this. He had predestined this. They are predestined to be part of this community, okay? That's why Paul's speaking about this idea of predestination. God always planned for Gentiles to be part of his body, all right? In verse 13, he goes on, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Okay? So there's a lot of language that can be really confusing. Okay? A lot of people will interpret this as... You know, God had chosen you from before the foundation of the world, right? And he gave you his spirit. And because of that, now you know that it's impossible for you to ever lose your salvation. But you are going to, you're predestined to be in Christ forever. There's nothing you did to deserve it. And there's nothing you can do to lose it, right? That is kind of the Calvinist and historic interpretation. Because, you know, all those who are in the Reform Movement really come from a more of a Calvinist background, okay? But, no. That's not actually what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about them as Gentiles being predestined to be in the people of God, and they receive the Spirit. The Spirit is the evidence that they really do belong to God, okay? It is the the mark from heaven that you belong to him, okay? That's why it's a seal. It's the first fruits, right? You get a portion of the Spirit, and then in the age to come, you get the fullness of it right? You get the first bit. It's a deposit, okay? But then we're going to get our full inheritance, right, on in the age to come. We'll have the fullness of it, okay? That's the idea here. So the he's trying to give them assurance, not that they can never lose their salvation, but that they actually do belong to him, all right? That's that's really the emphasis of what Paul is going for. And the reason why I, I say that with confidence is because this is the only view that harmonizes all of the warnings of Scripture, the warnings about falling away, all right? Because if if we don't have this paradigm, then what happens is we don't know how to interpret those warnings, okay? And there's there's so many of them, all right? There's so many of them. We'll get into them a little bit, but I just want to give a, a broad overview first, okay? God, he's being warned all the time in the Scripture that we have to be careful not to do this. We have to be careful to do this. And if we don't, then we can lose our salvation, That's the warning. We can fall away. We can be cut off from the vine of Christ. We can have our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay? Scripture warns about this in several places, right? This is why Peter says, you know, you must make every effort to make your calling and election sure, right? Add to your knowledge of Christ, right? Goodness and self-control, right? And if you do these things, you will make your calling secure, right? There's this there's this diligence that we have to have to make sure that we're growing. And this is the problem because... In particular, you know, I minister to a lot of young people, and what happens is young people are told all the time, if you come to this altar call and you make this decision for Christ, all right, then you're guaranteed salvation. And I, I just want to say, like, hear me, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to, um, I, I'm not trying to speak ill of those who teach that because I understand their heart and why they do, but you have to understand, like, most young kids that grow up in youth group that go to an altar call, most of them fall away. Most of them fall away from the faith. And, and this is a problem with the, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, right? It's like, you can never be sure if you're saved. 
right, if you believe in perseverance in the saints, well, the way that doctrine goes is that if you're really saved, then you will persevere until the end, okay? And it and the idea is that that's supposed to give us comfort, but actually it does the opposite, right? Because you can never be sure if you're actually saved, <laughs> right? Because I know pastors that have fallen away from the faith. I know men and women who have had serious walks with God and have fallen away from the faith. And if you hold to perseverance in the saints, then what you have to say is, well, they were never really saved, right? You either have to say, well, they were never really saved or they're destined to one day return to the faith, okay? And I understand, but what you're, what you're doing is you're, you're sticking your theological system, right, in, to, in, in trying to make sense of what you're saying, but it's, 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 it's misguided, all right? It's not the truth, okay? No, you really can fall away. And if you fall away, there is no guarantee that you're going to come back because you really did have this experience or maybe that experience you had was not really God. And what it does is it, ca- it, it causes everyone, you can never be sure about anybody's salvation, right? Like, it does the opposite of actually giving you assurance of salvation, okay? No, the truth is this. If in your heart you have real faith, you have a real allegiance to Christ, and we're going to talk about that dynamic, you know, in a further in a future episode. If you have real faith, then you can have confidence, right, that you will be saved on the day of judgment. But you need to have, uh, you need to recognize that the Scripture also warns that your heart can become hardened by sin, and then you can fall away from the faith. Okay, so if you have a vibrant faith then you can have confidence that you're in Christ, all right? But it's your responsibility to nurture your faith, right? It's your responsibility to nurture your faith. And and the scripture warns that if you don't, then your heart can become hardened. Like the, the number one passage that I think really gives a helpful understanding of this dynamic is Hebrews 3 and 4. Hebrews 3 and 4, okay? And the entire book of Hebrews is written two Jewish believers who are struggling with their faith in Christ and are considering returning to Orthodox Judaism, meaning denying that Jesus was the actual Messiah, right? And the author of Hebrews is warning them that if they do this, okay, then they're going to lose their salvation. They're going to lose everything that they have gained by initially believing in Christ. And in fact, you know, he's even going to go on, I think in, in chapter 10, and he's going to say it's worse. It's worse than those Israelites who once followed the law of Moses and abandoned the law of Moses. It's worse. What you would do if you followed Christ and then abandoned Christ, it would be worse than that, right? And he's warning them about how serious a, 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 a calamity will come upon them if they do this, all right? But what he does is he gives us a, a, a metaphor to understand what this life is like, okay? And this is the metaphor that he gives us. He says that the ancient Israelites were saved, right, by the blood, right? They were saved by blood through the Exodus, right? The blood of the lamb, right, saved them, but then they were baptized in the Red Sea. That's what he does. He likens it to a baptism, right, where the Red Sea is parted, the Israelites walk through it, and that's like a baptism of the entire people group. All right, and when they get out of the baptism, they don't immediately go to the promised land. They're tested in the wilderness for forty years, and he and he says, and they died there. An entire generation died there because they lost faith. All right, their faith was tested in the wilderness, and they lost faith, and their bodies littered the wilderness. And he warns us, saying, "This is exactly the same test that we are in." 
all right? This life is our t- the test of our faith. So even though we're saved through baptism, now is the time for testing. And we're tested in this life. And if we make it through the test, then we enter into the promised land, okay? And he goes on in chapter four to say, make every effort to enter into his promised rest. Okay, this is the metaphor that he's giving. And it's, it's a biblical one. It's an apt one. It's important that we understand this. And he's warning them, you know, in chapter three, He says this in verse 12, he says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Okay, as has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. All right. And therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Okay? So he's he's saying that we are like those ancient Israelites who even though we were saved through baptism, now our faith is being tested. And we have to be careful, and it's our responsibility. This is the main point that I'm making here. God is saying in the Bible that it's our responsibility. Okay, the problem with a lot of assurance of salvation teaching is that it says that all the responsibility is God's. Okay, but that's simply not true. The Bible puts the responsibility on us primarily. Why? Because it says that God will help us. All right, God's going to do his responsibility, which is to help us. All right, but he won't do the part that's our responsibility. All right, and that's what the Bible's trying to clarify what is our responsibility. All right. And so it's telling us here in Hebrews and in many other passages, it tells us similar things, right? Our responsibility is to encourage one another daily, right? So that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, okay? And this is the the dynamic of when we start to practice sin, Okay, we can start to practice sin in our lives, and what can happen is our hearts become can become increasingly hardened to God, all right? That's why I teach people, hey, everybody stumbles, everybody struggles with sin, but it's important that you continually repent of your sin, right? If you repent seven times of in the same day, if you commit the same sin seven times and you repent of it each time, then your brother has to forgive you, right? If you sin against your brother seven times, he has to forgive you. I believe that that is the standard that God uses for us. If we sin against him seven times in the same day, in the same sin, right? But we repent of it each time. He will forgive us, right? And it's important that we do that because if we don't repent, then what happens is our hearts can start to grow hardened, okay? And we've got to encourage one another so that we don't give up all right, because what it looks like to have your heart hardened by sin is that when your heart becomes hardened by sin, you don't want to follow God anymore. All right, that's what it looks like. All right, a lot of people are afraid, like they they're trying so hard to follow God, but they keep stumbling in sin. And like, man, has my heart become hardened? And is God going to reject me? And my answer would be no, because you're still worried about it. <laughs> you know, like you're worried about it, and you you still have a faith that's in there. You want to please God. Like that's a, all of that's a good sign. When your heart really becomes hardened, you don't want you don't want to anymore. It's like 
It's not worth it, right? You don't want to follow God anymore, right? You don't want to deny yourself. You're not struggling with sin anymore. You're practicing sin. That's the difference, okay? So I hope that paradigm makes sense. Um, I just want to look at a couple more passages um, because I know there's so many passages and obviously we can't get to them all, but I, I want to show how the paradigm that I've laid out holds true for many of these passages, okay? So for example, in Romans um, chapter 8, Romans 8 is a big one, okay? And um, Paul says this in verse 14, he says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Okay, so this idea again that it's the Spirit, right, that proves that we belong to him, all right? And this is a pattern in Paul. Paul's going to constantly encourage these believers to remember that they receive the Spirit. Remember when you receive the Spirit. He tells the Galatians, right, if what has been started by the Spirit is now going to be, is, are now you going to try and finish it in the flesh, right? Meaning you receive the Spirit, which shows that you belong to him. But now you're trying to prove to God that you belong to him by getting circumcised and following the law of Moses. But you you already belong because of your faith. It was your faith that caused you, right, to belong to him in the first place. And you were given the evidence of the Spirit. So now are you going to try to add to that with the works of the law? That's that's his point there, right? The Spirit is the thing that gives us the confidence that we belong to Christ, okay? All right. I want to touch on a couple other passages that speak about this this issue of perseverance, right? Um, this and perseverance is the doctrine. It's the Calvinist doctrine that says that you cannot lose your salvation. It's impossible to lose your salvation. All right, and I, I'm just going to touch on a couple, like the that same chapter, Romans eight. Um, you know, uh, Paul gets into the confidence that we can have right, in Christ at the end of that chapter, right? So in verse 33, he says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is God who justifies? Who then is it who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he goes on at the very end. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, from love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, I have definitely heard many people say this is proof. You can never lose your salvation. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Okay, and I understand because if we just read that passage just by itself, like I understand how we could be led to think that from that passage because Paul is trying to tell us, right, that we have security in him, that he loves us so much, right, that he will, right, protect us, like nothing can separate us, all this kind of stuff. But you have to understand there's this dynamic of, uh, remember, there's these believers who are telling these other believers, no, you don't belong to him because you're not circumcised, and you don't follow the law of Moses. And again, that's the heart. He's trying to give assurance, right, to these believers. He's not He's not trying to assure them that they can never lose their salvation. How do we know that? Because in a couple chapters, if you fast forward to Romans 11, he's going to warn these same believers that if they, if they don't do something, they will be cut off by God, right? In Romans 11, he says, be very careful, you Gentile believers, not to become arrogant, towards Israel, right? He says, don't be arrogant, but tremble. 
In verse 21, he says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Okay? He's speaking here about Israel. Israel, most of the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah, so they were cut off from the people of God. Right? These ones who reject Jesus. And these Gentiles who believed in Christ are grafted into the vine of Christ. But now he's warning them that if you become arrogant towards the nation of Israel, then God will cut you off, right? And he'll graft in the Israelites again if they come to faith, right? So how can Paul warn them here in chapter 11 that they'll be cut off if they do this? And then in chapter 8, he's telling them that nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. How does that make any sense, right? And the way it makes sense is because what Paul's trying to assure them of and what he's not trying to assure them. He's trying to assure them that for those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation, okay? If you're in Christ, all right, then nothing can separate you from the love of God. But he's not trying to assure them that they can never get out of Christ. Does that make sense? If you're in Christ then nothing can separate you, right, from God's love. But he's not saying it's impossible for you to depart from Christ, okay? In fact, that's what he's warning about here in chapter 11. If you become arrogant towards the natural branches, then he will cut you off, all right? And that warning of being cut off is all over the place, right? Jesus warns in John 15, every branch in me that bears fruit, right, is pruned, right? The idea of pruned is that the parts that don't, that aren't bearing fruit are cut off, okay? So the minor parts of you are cut off, okay? But if you do not bear fruit, right, if you don't allow God to prune you, right, then you are cut off, (laughs) right? Every branch, we are the branches, every branch in me that does not bear fruit gets cut off and thrown into the fire, all right? So it's a warning that the branches that are in Christ, if they don't bear fruit, they will be cut off. All right? And this is the same warning that we should be giving to believers. You, you have to surrender to God and allow him to guide and lead you in your life and prune the areas of your life right, that are not bearing fruit so that you will bear fruit. Because if you don't, if you persist in rebelliousness against the Lord when he's trying to lead and direct your life, all right, then you can become fruitless and absolutely you can be cut off. And how does that manifest? It manifests in you not wanting to follow God anymore, okay? And that happens to many believers who fall away, all right? And the difference is, you know, a, a lot of people will say, well, those that fell away, it's, it's a sign that they never belong to Christ. But look, I just don't think that's true because I know a lot of people who've fallen away, all right? And I'll tell you that their faith, they've, many of those people following have had vibrant faith, all right? If they couldn't have a, you know, confidence in their faith then, if that was all a sham, right? If they were just imagining God moving in their life or all this kind of stuff, right? But it wasn't actually that. Then we have no basis for confidence in our own faith, okay? That our faith is genuine. If their faith wasn't genuine, I don't think we have confidence in our faith. Now, absolutely, there is a dynamic that many of those who call themselves Christian are not actual Christians. Okay, none of us deny that that takes place, all right? But we need to have humility about this dynamic that God warns us, all right, that we have to do certain things to remain in the faith, all right, 
And that's, it, we're never called to have assurance that we can never be cut off. Does that make sense? We're to have assurance that if we're in the faith, we can have assurance that all of these good things will be happening to us because we're in the faith, all right? It's this, it's it's the exact same way that core production worked in the Old Testament. If you're part of the nation of Israel and upholding the major obligations of the covenant, all right, then you can have confidence that you're going to share in all of the destiny that Israel has been given, all the promises that Israel has been given, all right? But there's no guarantee that God will keep you in Israel, all right? You, if you commit certain sins and you don't repent, you can be ejected from the nation of Israel. And then the promises given to Israel do not apply to you, all right? It works the exact same way, right, in the new covenant, right, that we have here, all right? The last passage that I'm going to get into is Philippians 1.6. I'm just taking some of these bigger ones that I've heard people use to teach um, some of these doctrines. Philippians 1.6 says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, right? I understand how that can be very comforting, right? He who started this work will carry it on to completion, right? He's telling this to believers. And the way this gets taught is that that's the way it works for every believer. When God starts something, he always finishes it. And I just want to say lovingly that uh, that's clearly not what Paul believed. And that's not what he's trying to communicate here in Philippians 1. Okay, why? Because what you're going to see is that to other churches, he writes different things. So, for example, in, to the Thessalonian church, he says this in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4. He says, in fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. And for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent out to find about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Okay, so what he's t- what he's telling to these Thessalonians is that he was so worried about them because he heard that they were coming under persecution and he had warned them that they would be persecuted, but he was afraid that the persecution would make them recant their faith. And then all the work that he had done with them would have been for nothing, right? That's what he was afraid of. Okay, if Paul believed in this doctrine of perseverance, right, like that, okay, they received the Spirit, therefore nothing, right, could separate them from the love of Christ in the way that, you know, Calvinists interpret that, and nothing could make them fall away, then he wouldn't have been worried, right? But what you're going to see is that this is a theme of Paul's letters, where he's constantly worried about the believers falling away, all right? 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I have labored, this verse 27, I labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches, right? He's worried about them all the time, okay? Why? Because he's worried that what happened in the Galatian church will happen to them, right? In the Galatian church, he's he's writing, he writes, you know, the, the letter of Galatians because they're apostatizing, because they're turning to another gospel, right? In Galatians 1, 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. See, he's what's happening in Galatians is that much of the church is turning, is being swayed by this message that the Judaizers are preaching to them, right? And they're turning to another gospel. And he's shocked by it. He's astonished that so many of them are turning away, right? They're falling away. And this is consistent for Paul. He's worried about it. That's why he's visiting them. That's why he's trying to encourage them and strengthen them so that they won't fall away, right? So question, why does he tell the Philippians church, the Philippian church, that he's confident that he will, God will finish the work they started at, you know, in them, 
right? Well, because he has a lot of confidence in the Philippian church. That's why. It's it's not like some, you know, like we turn these things into doctrine, like that apply for everybody. But no, what he's saying is that I, he's saying, Philippians, you guys have done so good. I've had confidence in you, right? Like I, I've seen your faith. I know you have the maturity to be able to handle everything, right? And I'm confident in you. I'm not so confident in those Thessalonians, <laughs> right? I'm not so confident in those Corinthians, right? But I have confidence in the Philippian church. Like they seem like they're going to be able to handle it, right? It, it, it's That's what he's saying there, all right? And when we turn that into a doctrine about how everybody can have the same kind of, of, of confidence, right? And no one needs to be afraid of falling away. I, I, I think what we do is we blur those lines, right? Those lines on the highway that I referred to earlier really become unclear. And that actually results in a lot of Christians either becoming terrified that they're going to fall away from Christ, or it, it results in this, like, this, uh, unfounded bravado, whether it's like, oh yeah, nothing can, you know, I prayed that prayer, I went to that altar call, like I know that nothing can now, you know, uh, separate me from the love of Christ and my my assurance is, is guaranteed. And then what happens is they don't actively try and grow in the faith, right? They're not actively, they're not, they're not dying daily. And because of that, because they're not making those decisions, they're actually setting themselves up to fall away from the faith. And that's my concern. Right? My concern is I want us to preach assurance in the way that the Bible intends it to be taught, right? which is that we can have assurance that if we're in Christ, that we will be raised from the dead, right? meaning when we're persecuted. That's really the heart of a lot of this assurance teaching. It's to assure us that even if we suffer for the sake of Christ, it's going to be worth it. right? It's, it's worth whatever hardship or suffering that we go through. Because he will be faithful to raise us from the dead, right? And reward us and vindicate us, okay? That's where all the assurance, the heart of the assurance comes from in Scripture. That's why we can have assurance, all right? He's not trying to say that nothing you can do can separate you. In fact, no, you need to be careful. You need to be careful, right, that you are continuing to take up your cross and, and, and pursue Jesus and put him first in your life. And this is maybe the most practical way that I can say this is that, You've got to get. You've got to put God first in your life, right? The danger happens when people start putting God second, third, fourth, fifth priority in their lives. That's when you really open yourself up to the danger of falling away from Christ. Okay, my you know my comfort is that if you put Christ first, okay, you're generally going to be okay. If He's the most important thing in your life, you're generally going to be okay. We all stumble. All right, we all stumble. There's grace and there's mercy for that, right? You repent, you get back up, you start walking with God again, and he absolutely is helping us, right? He, his grace is helping us to stay on that path because none of us in our own strength would be able to walk this path, all right? This is a crazy hard path, but God is helping us, all right? And by his grace, we absolutely can overcome, all right? But there is a responsibility that we have, and that's to put him first. And what I mean by that is like, look, when you when you make serious decisions to put God not first in your life, like if you, you know, if you leave your spouse for another person, don't do not think that God will save you on that day if you don't repent. Why? Because that's a that's a serious sin. The Spirit of God will be convicting you. Right, will be, uh, will be speaking your heart. No, you've got to repent of this. You've got to repent of this. But if you harden your heart to say no, no, I don't. 
right? Absolutely, you could be cut off the vine of Christ, okay? If you say, hey, my dream is to go to a great college and make a million dollars a year, and that's the dream of my life, or my dream is, you know, to go to the Olympics, or my dream, there could be a million dreams that you have, right? But if you're going to follow Christ and be a real disciple of Christ, God is going to require you in different times of your life to lay down those dreams to him. You're going to be challenged in your life. Do you do you trust God with those dreams, or are they idols in your life? And this is you know something that I think many Christians don't understand. You cannot have an idol in your life and be a disciple of Christ long term, right? Like I understand that when we come to Christ initially, we surrender our lives where we say, "Lord, you're the Lord of my life." Right? We get baptized, show that we've died to ourselves, and now I'm living for Christ. But the reality is. God takes us through the process of dying to ourselves throughout the course of our lives, where our faith is tested, right? Our faith is tested in the wilderness, okay? And overcoming those tests is essential if you want to make it till the end. And that's what the scriptures are warning about, all right? We've got to put Christ first in our life. We've got to put the kingdom of God first. If we put the kingdom first, if we seek his kingdom and his righteousness, then he'll add everything else unto us, all right? But if we don't, all right, then the scripture warns us about doing that, all right? And and falling away is one of the dangers, one of the things that can happen, all right, if we don't allow the Lord to really lead our lives, okay? All right, that turned into a longer episode than I was planning. I know that got a little bit dense at certain parts. I'm sure there's there's also a million scriptures that we could have gone into that, you know, you might be like, hey, what about this scripture? What about that scripture? I'm more than happy to address any of those things. You can always email me at dennis at therighteousremnant.org, okay? And I can try and answer any specific things. Um, all right, God bless. <laughs>